Hello and welcome to Crafting the Crypto Economy. I am Silvia Sanchez, Project Manager at Owl Explains by Ava Labs, and today we bring you a transformative podcast series in partnership with the Crypto and Blockchain Economic Research Forum. This series features leading faculty from renowned global universities exploring various elements in the blockchain ecosystem. These episodes are a bit longer than our usual hootenannies since we will be getting very deep. And also, each episode will have its accompanying paper posted on our website for further reading. And with that, I will hand it over to our moderators, Fahad Saleh and Andreas Park. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another edition of the Crafter in the Crypto Economy podcast series, uh, a series that Fahad Saleh and I host uh, together with uh, Owl Explained. And our purpose of the series is to discuss research papers and try to dissect them in such a way that uh, the general interested public can understand them better. Now, we've had um, other topics in this podcast series, ranging from the, uh, the organization of DAOs, decentralized autonomous organizations and their governance. We have talked about automated market makers. Um, and obviously, we're all very interested in, you know, the idea of a crypto economy, about blockchain technology, you know, decentralized systems and the like. But ultimately and fundamentally, a blockchain is based on economic principles. And the economic principles around that use some form of representation of value, cryptocurrency to pay for things. And, you know, at the moment, we're seeing in the regulatory space some real challenges to that notion and how this can be done. And, you know, at the end of the day, if regulators make the usage of cryptocurrency, so the issuance of cryptocurrency legal per se, or, uh, you know, burdensome in such a manner that they can't actually be used, then that's a problem. And so Fahad and I thought, you know, one thing that we really need to discuss is the regulatory landscape around this, the, uh, the thoughts around about it, and, and how this can actually fit in. And we're really happy to have Lewis Cohen here with us, who will be talking to us about the legitimacy of thinking about crypto assets as securities or not. And we're really excited to have you. Now, um, Louis, I'm going to let you introduce yourself for a moment so that the audience knows who we're actually talking to. Well, thank you, Andreas. Thank you, Fahad. A pleasure to be here and um, really looking forward to the discussion. Again, I'm, I'm Louis Cohen. I'm a co-founder of a law firm uh, in the U.S. Uh, with offices in New York, uh, Wilmington, Delaware, and Washington, D.C., called DLX Law. And uh, before we founded um, DLX Law about six years or so ago, I was a partner in two very large global firms uh, practicing in the securities and capital markets area and spent a lot of time working with the SEC and other markets regulators, both in the U.S. and in, in other countries, and spent a lot of time uh, thinking about the application of uh, securities laws to commercial activity. So it's kind of one of the things that kind of brought me into the crypto space, like so many of us, the fascinating new questions, opportunities, and issues that that uh, crypto brought up. So uh, thrilled to be able to talk to you all today. Awesome. Now, um, let's get right into it. Um, we hear on the news and in in public forums and the like, from especially from the chairman of the SEC regularly, that there is a uh, all-knowing and all-encompassing law passed in the 1930s that um, helped you know U.S. capital markets flourish, and that this law is the law of the land, which must be abided by and under all circumstances. Now, for many people, this 
this description alone sounds a little suspicious because in 1930, there was no internet, there was no computer, actually. There was no digital storage of anything. Uh, a lot of transactions had to go through intermediaries and the like. And so that kind of sets a very different institutional environment. And, um, you know, we, we are all used to, at least in many countries, that laws have to be adapted over time. So, for instance, in the UK, there is still a law on the books which says that it is illegal to handle a salmon under suspicious circumstances. I don't know what that means, but it is illegal and it is a law, uh, but it's no longer enforced because we realize that, you know, we can probably handle salmon even under some suspicious circumstances. Now, what I would like you to do for our audience, and I assume many people are not lawyers, can you outline maybe a little bit about the history of where this law comes from, why it actually was put into place? And, and how it has evolved and how its application has evolved maybe over the next few decades. Yeah, sure, Andres, and, and completely agree. Uh, I, I think a lot of uh, folks sort of dive into these topics because, you know, they become interested in, in crypto assets, blockchain um, economic systems, and find themselves sort of thrown into discussions about, well, is this a security? Is that a security? Without a lot of background or understanding of how we, we sort of got ourselves here. So I think the, that it is really worthwhile just pausing for a moment to to reflect upon that and to reflect upon you know, some of the unique uh, elements of the U.S. legal system. One of the most important is broadly referred to as federalism, the distinction between those things that um, the federal government on a national scale regulates and those things that are are left to the states. And um, uh, pretty much everything is left to the states unless and until the federal government has a, a legitimate interest in uh, in, in uh, stepping in and a constitutional basis uh, for doing so and preempting state law. Um, so, so you know, going back to you know the earliest times in the country, you know, people had all kinds of commercial dealings with each other, and you know, to the extent uh, they were subject to uh, legal principles, those were at the state level. You know, you traded things with each other. Did you cheat me? Did you lie to me when you sold me that you know pile of uh, of coal or or whatever you may did? And um, those matters got resolved in a sort of ordinary sort of way. Uh, as uh, you know, legal entities started springing up, particularly corporations, uh, a bit before the Civil War, but but of course, most particularly in the Industrial Revolution after the Civil War, um, you know, it became uh, a new class of what were otherwise commercial activities. Hey, I'm going to give you money. Can we kind of get on with this business together? And 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 they sprung up where you could be abstracted away from the commercial activity simply by in some way owning either an interest in whatever venture had been set up um, or owning uh, you know obligations of a venture that was a, a legal person and not an individual. But all of that was still a state law matter. Um, as that business grew and grew and grew, you know, there were booms and busts and panics and markets developed, like markets developed for many different things, commodities and all sorts of things. But markets for these uh, sorts of, of, of instruments uh, developed, and we refer to them as securities, but they were all regulated at the state level. And of course, as we know, that sort of boom and bust cycle continued apace uh, until the, the ultimate boom and bust of the 1920s leading into the stock market crash of 1929. Um, as you know, many economists have dealt with, there are many causes of the depression that followed, but certainly the expansion and, and dramatic collapse of the uh, equity markets in the United States had a large 
uh, role to play in that. And so Congress uh, stepped in, did studies, gave the matter consideration and said, you know, it's time enough for there to be some national regulation of this sort of investment or securities activity. And there were hearings and what have you. And ultimately, a series of laws were passed, the first of which was the Securities Act of 1933. But of course, if you're going to regulate a sort of activity, you kind of have to know, well, what are we regulating here? And so um, the most important, one might argue, the most important element of this new regulation, this new set of federal laws was, well, what is a security, right? What's the definition? How are you defining that? And Congress sort of started to proceed the way I suspect many of us would have. They said, well, let's make a list here. There's there's stocks, you know, there's there's bonds, there's there's notes, there's debentures, there's participation interests and in various sorts of things. And they sort of, you know, on their fingers uh, counted these things off and they went through, you know, a long list of, you know, 10, 15 odd odd things. And and then when they got done with the list, you know, somebody sort of scratched their heads. Yeah, but those are all very particular. Couldn't there be other things, you know, that we haven't named, but that nevertheless are kind of what we're trying to get at here? And so they looked to the state laws and they said, well, states have this concept of an investment contract. And, you know, sort of nobody knows what it means, but it sounds really good. Um, and in fairness, people did know what it means. And there were state law cases, lest my, my legal colleagues listening uh, try and call me out here. But it wasn't super clear. In any event, Congress in their wisdom included this term investment contract in the federal statute and assumed that people knew enough about what it would mean to sort of make it all work. And in fact, after the law was adopted in 1933, there was an extended period where there was no clear and certain understanding of what exactly that term investment contract meant. So let me let me interrupt you for one second. <laughs> so just to have it a little more organic, I'm going to jump in every now and then to, to ask some questions. So just to recap for a moment. So you, you identified a number of problems. So the first one is that uh, essentially, the interaction between somebody who gave money to a firm and the firm itself or the entity, whatever their money came from, was becoming less personal and became essentially tradable. So I think that's the first part, which is of importance here. There is also the state versus um, versus federal part where there could be some discrepancy between different states and you want to have clarity. Because if you have a national market, right, you need to have something, you have to have a unifying force. And then the third part is that there are so many different schemes that you kind of want to make sure that as the economy evolves and as people's, you know, uh, innovation in financial products evolves, that there is some form of clarity there too, right? Now, from my perspective as an economist, I always think about it as saying that, look, there's people who want to have other people's money, they need financing of some form. And then there's people who are willing to give financing, they want something, they want to put their money to good use. And to, to make this market work, you need to have some certainty as an investor that your funds are being used wisely, or at least um, legitimately and, and prudently. And so therefore, the, the people who want to look for the money, the issuers of these assets, essentially have an interest that the other side feels safe enough to do the investment. And so if you have some a system which makes this market work, it's really in the interest of both sides. Right? So that kind of seems to be the objective that we're after here. Yeah, I think that's right. I, I would, Andreas, introduce one other factor, which is an economist, I'm, I'm, I'm sure will, will be relevant to you, and that is market power. Um, so the, the, there's a core question of who has the greater market power, because that fundamentally drives this discussion. 
because we can think about companies raising money from retail individuals. There, the money flows from the retail individual to the company. In most cases, the company has much greater market power to set the terms, disclose what they want to disclose, and not disclose what they don't feel like disclosing, and creating potential information asymmetries. But we could look at another very similar sort of transaction with exactly the opposite market power. When banks loan money to individuals, there you have the large entity putting out the money, and it's the individual who you could say is the issuer, right, in that respect. They're getting the money, they're doing things. But the market power is completely different. The bank has many different ways to extract from the borrower accurate information and to enforce against the borrower for failures to do that. So I think it's really important to understand the market power dynamics that differ uh, between those two otherwise similar activities. So really, we're talking about then, in some form that there is a fair information disclosure from both sides from if you want the investor side, and also from the side of the of the issue of security, mm -hmm. right? So that exactly, essentially, you need to know that the investor in some form behaves uh, appropriately, and then that the issuer of this of this item also behaves appropriately. That's exactly right. And that the investor, again, in the bank situation, the investor who is the bank, in effect, by making the loan, um, has the market power to ensure that they can extract the information. When it's uh, the other way around and it's a retail person investing in a large company, that's where the interference of the government becomes more relevant because the individual does not have the market power absent other drivers to ensure that they're getting accurate information. Right. So now, if we don't mind, can we dive at just that you already started uh, with a description of investment contract versus securities and particular types of assets being securities. I'd like to dive into this a little more. Right. So the securities that were listed in the act itself, they are or the items that are listed in this act, they are securities per se. So in and by itself, like a stock, there's no question about it. Well, not even that, I regret to say, because when it comes to the law, you know, we can we can dispute anything. So so the, the definitions have a key clause at the end, which is unless the context otherwise requires. And that becomes particularly relevant with um, the concept of a note. So, you know, you and I, Andreas, can go out for beers and I forget to bring my wallet and we've drunk a good bit and it looks like I really should have ponied up $100, but I don't have $100. So I write a note. I say, I promise to pay Andreas $100 a month from now with 2% per annum interest. That's a note, unequivocally. That is a note that meets the legal, and there's, it's dated, it's signed, it has all the requirements of a note, but it's not a security because the context otherwise requires, and that does create create significant confusion. So I just want to emphasize holding aside the concept of investment contract, the clause of unless the contract, the context otherwise requires sort of overrides everything, although it works backwards from something that is deemed to be or presumed to be a security unless the context otherwise requires. But it's an important nuance to understand. And it does come up in other contexts. Uh, particularly I have a this feeling that we're going to come back to this at some point later. Can, I, actually, can we dwell on that a moment here? Naive question, but so the context otherwise requires. What exactly does that mean? Like, so why, for example, in that in, in the in the example that you just gave, does that you know make it so that this note is not a security? Um. Well, well, the, well the, 
that that's why our legal system um, leaves things to the courts. So uh, there's judge-made law that has interpreted that, and the prevailing uh, case in this area, which is a bit of a confused case, is called uh, Reeves. Uh, I think it's uh, Ernst and Young versus Reeves, or Reeves versus Ernst and Young, R-E-V-E-S. And the Reeves case sets out what's known as the family resemblance test. And uh, but prior to the Supreme Court adopting Reeves and the Reeves test, there was a split in, amongst the various circuits or the, 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 the secondary courts in the United States as to how to interpret that. So there is no set and clear interpretation beyond what we have in Reeves. And Reeves is not always self-evident as to how to apply, be applied. All right. Um, <laughs> this is going to be very interesting. <laughs> this, um, so just just for context, actually. So I'm, you know, I'm I'm talking from Canada. In Canada, we have actually as well. Actually, in Canada, we don't have a federal law. We have only provincial law, and the mm-hmm. yes. Ontario Securities or the Ontario Capital Markets Act essentially says something to the effect of. There's a long list of items that are securities, and everything else that is also considered generally as a security is a security. Mm-hmm which is a little squishy, as you can imagine. <laughs> it's yes. very Canadian squishiness. Um, now, now let's talk about uh, the, the, difference, the difference or the, the, the notion of an investment contract. So I'm, I'm trying to understand this. So because as you described the law, there's a, a list of items plus investment contract. So is every investment, so as you, and setting aside the context uh, component, is every investment contract necessarily a security per se, or is there, is that, is, yes, the, is there a particular well, act well, only a security and uh, an investment contract and can be something that's not a security? The that's technical term, really confused, right? yeah, yeah. <laughs> the technical term, no, no, it's, it's not difficult. The technical term uh, investment contract when used in its technical uh, capacity is a security. You can have things that you might informally think of as an investment contract, but unless they either they are the type of investment contract that is a security or they're not. It's it, it, it's really the best way to understand those two words combined here is from the various court decisions that have interpreted those words. So rather than thinking of them as two words, and 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 um, uh, again, uh, particular uh, strict interpretationalists will, will roll over in their in their seats uh, by saying this. That I think some people want to say, well, if it's an investment contract, it must have a contract. That's a line of thinking. It's not personally my line of thinking, but it is a line of thinking. I personally prefer to think of those two words as you could, you know, you could include any words, magic, you know, bullet. Um, you know, a magic bullet is what courts have said falls into that category, right? So it's just the term we use for anything that we believe fits within that judicially mandated decision. Again, many believe that we should not look at the law that way and instead should have a very, very strict limitation as to what that means and follow sort of state law. And those are, they're, they're different points of view on that. I think we get to the same conclusion about crypto assets without needing to fight that fight about whether a very strict application is necessary or appropriate. All right, so maybe it is now time to go through the evolution of uh, of the understanding in the in the U.S. economy and the U.S. legal system what actually constitutes an investment contract. So tell us something about orange groves. 
Yes, yes. So, so we had this this um, state of play for whatever it is between 1933 and 1946, um, where uh, um, lower courts struggled around with this concept of investment contract, but the Supreme Court had not spoken. They actually spoke uh, prior to um, the uh, Howey case in an earlier case, but that didn't formulate a clear decision. And so that sort of kind of got a little bit brushed to the side. The Howey case was the first time the Supreme Court came out and said, all right, enough of, of, of all of this. Um, we are going to set out a clear rule. And the clear rule they enunciated in either three or four pieces, depending on how you like to count things. They said, what we are ref- what Congress meant, and they looked at the state law that had preceded them, and they kind of chewed on it a bit, and they said, what Congress meant, we believe, is that where there is an investment of money in a common enterprise with a reasonable expectation of profit, and it originally said solely from the efforts of others that was since modified to be substantially or primarily from the efforts of others, because solely was a bit, you know, kind of unduly restrictive, um, then that set of arrangements is what we mean by investment contract. And that's why I say I don't think it serves a lot of purpose to dwell on the two words as opposed to the Supreme Court's articulation. And look, at any point in time, there's nothing constitutional about this. If Congress wanted to completely scrap that test, come up with a new test, that was terrible, Supreme Court. That's not what we meant. What are you talking about? You guys are a bunch of numbskulls. Here's what we meant. And they could do that. There's nothing that stops them to do that. But in point of fact, it served pretty well. And for the most part, you know, Congress has not saw fit to fundamentally change that. And, you know, it's it's proceeded um, apace. So it's an investment contract are those four things. In terms of the orange groves, Andreas, that you allude to, that, of course, many people have heard oranges are not securities, um, et cetera. That goes back to the facts giving rise to this case, which are important to understand because they, again, help elucidate this. Um, uh, After World War II, um, this guy named W.J. Howey um, started a real estate business in Florida, which was, you know, kind of growing again. And a lot of uh, people had returned from the war, needed some time off, and liked to vacation down in Florida. And they'd come down to his hotel, and they'd stay there, and they'd have fun. And, you know, he was quite the entrepreneur, so he would take them out to the orange groves that he had nearby to his hotel. And he'd say to these visitors, generally speaking, from up north, man, look at all of that. Can you imagine all the orange juice? You know, everybody up there loves orange juice, don't they? Wouldn't you like a piece of that? And they're all, yes, it's very good. Well, you can have it right now. Come back to our sales office. We'll help you out. And so these people, after visiting the groves, would come back to the sales office and somebody say, well, look, you can buy a plot of land with some, some trees on it. And if you like, you can do whatever you want with those trees. You can harvest them yourself. But conveniently enough, we have another company over here and and they'll do all the harvesting for you, don't you know? And so just sign these two separate agreements, one, the purchase of the land, two, the management agreement with the company that would harvest the oranges. And Bob's your uncle, you're going to be in the swim. Well, this case, you know, made its way to the attention of the Supreme uh, the SEC. The SEC got involved and said, you know, this is the perfect case to really 
hone in on this concept because we think what this Howie company did was offer an investment contract. These two things taken together constituted exactly what Congress was trying to stop. People were not given the adequate disclosure. They weren't really interested in the orange groves, the oranges, or anything else. What they wanted is to invest in a business. And the business was being run by this Howie company, and that's what they were doing. They could have bought stock in the Howie company, and if they had offered that to the general public, they would have had to provide all this information, but they did not. They just simply kind of snookered people into this kind of two-part deal, and there you go. And of course, that's what gave rise to the Supreme Court agreeing with the SEC and concluding that because those four factors that I had mentioned, an investment of money and a common enterprise with the Howey Company, where the investors had a reasonable expectation of profit, they weren't doing it because they liked oranges and really hoped they could have a whole lot of oranges, and they were not planning to do it themselves for the most part. They were expecting the efforts of others, and those four factors present together, um, as far as the Supreme Court was concerned, allowed them to say, yes, that's what also should be subject to uh, federal oversight. So I have lots of questions coming out right of, right from the bat of this, right? So just because I want to, there's a few details I think that are important to understand. So the first comes from just basic logic. So as I understand it, just tell me if I'm right or wrong on this, but the Howie test is essentially is a sufficient condition for something to be an investment contract and a security. It's not a necessary one, right? So it's possible that there are other schemes that could also be counted as investment contract, even though they don't satisfy the conditions of Howie. Is that correct no. or is that wrong? I'd say that's wrong. I, I mean, there's not, yeah, yeah. I mean, there is no law that I'm aware of that has attempted to say, even though the Howie conditions are not met, you are still an investment contract. I'm not aware of it. I'm not saying there couldn't be. I'm just saying I'm not aware of any. Okay, so, so it is actually necessary and yeah. sufficient. That's actually very important. To the best of my right? knowledge, yes. And okay. I didn't say this, because saying it in the middle of the podcast is not the best time, but for the avoidance of doubt, there is no legal advice being given here. I am not your lawyer, not anybody's lawyer that, that that's listening to me on this and you know make your own investment decisions. This is really for informational and educational purposes only. So just sneak that one in there. But yes, no. so that's to my knowledge. That's fine. Yeah. We're just going to cut it out. <laughs> <laughs> No, but seriously. Um, yes. So okay, so that's okay. So that's interesting because um, you know, for me, it always reads like a sufficient condition, not necessary. Mm, I because there's also all I these other cases, but it's actually useful to know that at least in the understanding, commonly in the legal community, this is mm -hmm. necessary and sufficient. So then, you know, in in many ways, there are other investment schemes like the ones described by Howie that are not. Um, I'm not sure if they actually would count as a security, right? So, in, for instance, imagine you build. A, a condo tower and you sell the apartments and then you have a maintenance company for the condos that then make sure that the that the condos can be rent out for i don't know airbnb or to mm -hmm. long-term mm -hmm. renters right so now this is an investment contract i would argue probably but it doesn't it's not really it would not be something that you would register with the securities regulator or is it is there well, that's is a that fine observation because there's a lot of law, decisions, SEC guidance, exactly on this topic, because somewhat self-evidently, whenever you have a valuable fixed asset that can be used to produce 
income or revenue, someone is going to be there to say, wouldn't you like a piece of this, whether it's a condominium or any which other thing, we can easily extrapolate up. And the SEC has given guidance. So there's a, 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 a Another case that that's well known, the Foreman case, uh, in which um, uh, uh, cooperative apartments in New York City were being offered through sales of shares. So it's a little bit different. And uh, one of the buyers was aggrieved and sought to say, "Well, I'm, you know, I, I bought something that was a security or some sort of investment contract." And the Supreme Court disagreed. They said, "Really, this was a consumptive. You were buying this to live in it. The sales, even though they were." sort of cast as shares. There was nothing in this that's, you know, struck us, you know, as, as an investment contract. It was a consumptive arrangement. The generally speaking, at the highest level, I would say, Andreas, the, the core question in some of these very subtle things like timeshares is, are you doing this primarily with a consumptive goal in mind or primarily with an investment goal in mind? It can be difficult to tease that out, but that's really the core kind of issue. Okay. So then, and then the next thing, and I think that actually leads into the bigger discussion that we're going to have going forward is that what is a common enterprise? I, I, well, at the end of our, our, our article, which we have yet to plug, but I'm confident will be plugged in the podcast, um, we have an annex of scholarship on this topic. And I, there must be at least 10 separate lengthy scholarly articles on what is a common enterprise. It has caused great consternation. People have reviewed cases, tried to come up with theories. They've got everything to say. You know, it's one of those things where there are three completely separate um, doctrinal definitions of common enterprise known as uh, horizontal common enterprise, strict vertical, and broad vertical commonality. And different uh, parts of the country have, and their circuit courts, have adopted you know, different of these three definitions. And even within the three definitions, there's plenty of variation within those definitions as to how you actually apply them. So common enterprise, unfortunately, gives rise to a lot of uncertainty. And very often, in my view, what you see is a results-oriented decision. So if the court believes, mm, I think what's going on here, somebody was screwing around, you know, they're going to find in some way or another that there was a common enterprise and vice versa. If they feel like, I don't feel like uh, sort of anything uh, really inappropriate was going on here, then they may say that there's not. But the three, the three tests, the horizontal test, has to do with a pooling of funds from many different persons and using those funds in some way. That would be horizontal. Um, uh, strict um, uh, vertical is where the promoter and the investor share some direct interest in the scheme, regardless of how many people are involved, because some courts have said, well, it doesn't seem right if there's two people, you know, you have an investment scheme, but if there's only one person, ha, bad luck to you, right? So the, the vertical test would say, if there's a direct alignment in the economics, like we're going to do this together, and, you know, Fahad, you're going to get 5%, and I'm going to get 95%, that sharing in a scheme that we're working on where you're doing all the work, that is would, would meet that test, even if I was the only person in the scheme. And then broad uh, verticality would be if I'm, I'm really, it just eliminates the common enterprise test as a practical matter and just said, well, look, if I'm putting in money and I'm depending on Fahad, then we're in some sort of investment scheme together, regardless of whether I'm relying on you. And that's really just 
it's just another way of saying dependent on the efforts of others. And so other people have rejected that test because it just kind of reads out something that the Supreme Court clearly thought meant something. So horizontal, strict vertical, and broad vertical are the three doctrinal uh, versions of common enterprise. But even within those, there's a vertiginous um, uh, set of, of fact patterns and conclusions. So, but that's actually incredibly broad, as you describe it, because it could in all encompass a lot of different things that, you know, we may not actually perceive as securities at all, right? So, um, I like to. Well, me, um, can I can I double click on that, Andreas, because it's actually a hugely absolutely. important point, and and we bring this out in our article, the ineluctable modality of securities law. Just plugging it constantly here. Um, <laughs> Um, no, that's fine. But you should. And, this is, we're talking about your research, really. This is really what we're getting at. <laughs> and 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 the point you bring out, Andreas, is that nobody sets out to say, "Hey, I want to do an investment scheme with you." What do you think? Because if they did, it would be a securities offering and you would know it and there wouldn't be any dispute. So pretty much by definition, we're only applying these rules in hindsight. And this becomes really, really important when we move to the discussion of crypto assets, because it is one of our core uh, propositions is that the concept of investment contract relates to a relationship with two people who are doing business with each other and who after the fact, somebody says, I think I know really what was happening here, even though neither of the two parties characterize their relationship as one of a securities offering, we're going to impose that upon them. So that lack of knowledge of whether you were entering into it is really critical to this whole discussion. Because again, if someone said, I'm selling you securities, then you just have a, a straight up unregistered securities offering. We don't need to spend a lot of time. Hey, you know, everybody in the world, would you like to buy stock in my company? I didn't register with the SEC. That's for, you know, silly people. I'm just offering it to you. Well, of course, we violated the securities laws. We don't need to go through this complex analysis. Well, I mean, you know, I mean, this is a this is maybe is really an opinion, generally speaking. Mm. Um, and this is a little bit of a sidetrack, but I, I think it's useful to point out, right? So there is a difference between so we, we all operate in a legal environment normally. And obviously, there's contract law and the like, which which is relevant to what we do. But uh, in many, many interactions, there is no third party involved that requires an oversight of what we do, where we have to report to a third party and the like. And what a regulator really is, is a third party that you have to make disclosures to, you have to comply with and so on. And in many cases, for many interactions, this is incredibly burdensome because, you know, let's face it, you have to, if you have to, anytime you have to interact with the government, you have to hire a lawyer. That's very, it's very time consuming, costly. As economists, we think of it as a friction, right? So, and that's, you know, unless there is a particular purpose served that is for the betterment uh, that creates something better for the economy, then that's just wasteful, right? A hundred percent. And and the betterment like say, is the right, point we, I was we're making. Investing millions to save thousands, right? So that's yes, kind of not yes, what yes. you want, right? That's exactly right. And, and that's why I brought up the market power point at the very beginning, because that is exactly the betterment. The belief is that without that intervention of the government, we would not be able to ensure that people who do not have the market power to extract information and understand what they're doing will be given access 
to this information. And that's fundamentally what it seeks to do. That's why we have exceptions, wisely or foolishly, for uh, transactions that you know don't involve a public offering and are only directed at what we call wealthier or accredited investors, because the assumption is those people can extract the information that they need, and they do not need the government to intervene and force that disclosure. So now I want to talk about disclosure compliance and so on at some later point, mm. um, but I would like for you now, maybe we can transition to at this point to your main thesis um, mm -hmm. about the status of crypto assets as securities. Mm -hmm. So maybe this is something that you could just, uh, what is the basic premise of your theory? Why are or aren't crypto assets not securities? Or asset, well, actually, I'm giving it away what it is. So how about you say it yourself? <laughs> All good. So, so fundamentally, you know, what we did firstly as an empirical matter is we set out to review more or less the entirety of the relevant case law in the United States on this point. So the entirety of the circuit court cases looking at this question of which there are about, I think, 260 or 270 uh, different cases. There are uh, maybe another thousand odd, maybe more uh, lower court cases. Most of those can, you know, if they're important, they get bubbled up to the circuit court level. So it's just, just an empirical matter. Um, we, we set out to review that set and sort of see what we came up with. And and the, the theme really that became clear to us from that review was that um, this concept of investment contract really related to activity that involves for the you know the um, fundraising by one person from another. So again, the Howey test is the the sort of secret. There's an investment of money. Someone is investing money in somebody else. Um, the object of that investment scheme, what it is that is being offered, is generally speaking irrelevant to the scheme because the person who is providing the funding does not have a consumptive interest in that object. They don't want to use the object, whether it's real estate, a crypto token, or anything else, or oranges, or we'll talk maybe later about the uh, the hypothetical we have in our article where we refer to a made-up fruit called a strawange. Um, but none of those things are really what the transaction is about. The, what, what is the transaction about? One person has capital. They seek to increase the amount of capital they have by giving it to someone else to deploy. That relationship is what is the investment contract relationship and the security not the object. And it's much more self-evident when we talk about things like oranges or storanges or all these things that are not themselves legal instruments. When one transfers that object of the scheme, unless that object in and of itself provides rights uh, to another person, they're simply getting you know something that puts them in a very different position. They're not contributing to the person running the scheme. They're just a a, a passive uh, sort of bystander in the scheme. And I think that becomes critically uh, important. And we've seen uh, at least one federal court in the Ripple case, you know, zone in right on that, that, that critical point, um, that persons who are not providing funding uh, to a project are not in, and although this is to be completely fair, this was sort of alluded to, but not held in the Ripple case, um, but are not in a common enterprise with the um, uh, with the person. So 
our view of the appropriate uh, understanding of uh, investment contract is it's a scheme to raise money using some sort of object. The catch is that there's exceptions to everything. And from time to time, what you can do is create some sort of actual set of rights that can be transferred, but don't fall into any of those enumerated categories, just an unusual transferable contract. And when you do have something like that, that creates clear legal rights against an entity, and that gets transferred, even those secondary transfers of that object now are securities because the there are rights being transferred from one person to another. In otherwise, what you have simply is a coincidence of interest. So one easy example to understand is with, for example, OPEC. OPEC could, or an oil uh, member of OPEC, could agree in a transaction to sell Fahad, you know, a tanker full of oil. And Fahad said, well, why would I want to do that? And the OPEC member says, well, you know, I'm about to cut production. And if you buy this tanker for me right now, I undertake to you that I'm going to cut production. You're going to make a ton off this tanker. And I really need the capital right now. That's probably an investment scheme especially if it was offered widely. You know, Fahad is relying on the efforts of the OPEC member. He's contributing money. They're in a common scheme together, et cetera, et cetera. But if, you know, Fahad later transfers the oil to a third person, they have nothing to do with that scheme. They are just buying the oil. They have the same risk and reward as anybody else owning that asset. They may buy the asset from Fahad, purely for investment purposes, but if Fahad hasn't promised them anything and they have no direct relationship with the person who did make promises to Fahad, at that point, they're just entering into a commercial transaction with an asset whose value may be subject to the activities of someone else, in our case, the OPEC member cutting production, but otherwise they have no ability to exert any control over that. And they're therefore quite distinguishable from someone buying a security where any owner of that security has equal and same rights against that issuer. That's the critical difference. And that's why on the cover synopsis, our little abstract of our paper, we say you know, adopting a different theory would create something we refer to as an issuer-independent security, which is just not a concept we have in our securities laws. There has to be an identifiable entity who has a necessary legal relationship with each security holder for there to be a security. The concrete thing really you know, for us is, is reasonably easy to determine. Is the object of the scheme, is the object of the scheme something that in and of itself, when you pick it up and look at it and say, hey, what's that? It gives you clear rights and creates a clear legal relationship between two different persons or entities. A seed, a piece of real estate, and squeezable orange, none of these things create in and of themselves a legal relationship. That becomes the key thing. Now, let's use what I think would be a good concrete example for you. Let's say you have a website, and on the website, you say, um, anybody who brings me one of these special jelly beans, I'll give you a dollar. You're a company, and you say, here's the deal. You give me a dollar, I give you a jelly bean. Oh, you bring me a jelly bean, I'll give you a dollar. I promise to do that. That is a promise. We know you're a legal entity. You're Andreas Co. 
and Andreas Co. has given people jelly beans. This does not make necessarily the jelly bean a security because, you know, it's just a jelly bean. But there's a different kind of relationship there, right? Because there's an ongoing promise. Anyone who buys one of those special jelly beans with the nifty little A on it knows that they can always, if they want to, bring it back to Andreas, put it in a little gumball machine, whatever, and get a dollar. That is a different kind of relationship. When you talk about a DeFi token, there's nothing, in most cases, right, in which you can go to someone with that DeFi token and say, hey, I've got one of these token stroke jelly beans. Can you give me something else that, you know, I have a right to get? And if you fail to give it to me, I can pursue you. In the case of the jelly bean, I can go after Andreas's company and say, hey, hang on a second. Your website terms of service governed by, you know, XYZ law said you were going to do this. You didn't do this. I'm bringing a court case against you. With a DeFi token, you have no one to go to. If the protocol doesn't work the way you want it to work, you can be frustrated and upset, but you have nobody to go to to say, hey, you've got to, you know, you've got to make that whole. Um, I think Fahad, you know, an example I like to use is that of a physical key. So if you could imagine a physical key to a physical door lock, um, you could imagine two sets of circumstances. One where you find a key in a house that you bought and there's a door and it opens the door. And like all of a sudden, if the lock gets jammed and it doesn't open the door, sucks for you. But that's, you know, there you go. You don't, nobody told you, oh, that key I'm undertaking to you will open that door. But maybe somebody did. They said, well, if you buy this house, I'll give you this key. And every day I'm going to put, you know, some warm, hot food behind the door and you can have that food. And you think, well, that's a pretty good deal. I'll buy the house. And then the key stops opening the door. You said, well, that was part of my legal deal with you. I said I'd buy the house if I could open the door and get the hot food that you were going to put there. And now that's not happening. There's a legal relationship that's ongoing. You can't have a legal relationship with protocol code, with code. You don't have that. You simply have an ability to give instructions to a network of computers. Hey, I'm going to sign an instruction with my computer private key and I hope this network of computers will respond the way I want it to respond. But for example, if the network has a pause or a delay or shuts down or just isn't doing what you thought it was going to be doing, you don't get to go to somebody and say, I want my, my money back. And that critical distinction separates tokens that could reasonably be considered either a security or part of a security scheme and those that are not. Okay, so now that actually raises an interesting question, right? So when you have, you know, um, if you think of this, I mean, so now if you really want to go into this, now you can say, okay, but we have the proof of stake networks, right? Mm -hmm. And we have the, we have Lido, we have Coinbase um, and Binance. So these are all legal entities that run proof of stake operations, right? Staking as a service, right? Um, put them together, you know, you could. Can you collectively sue them now? Because they're kind of firms, if you want, that make a promise, or in, you know, they make they there's some form of organization that makes a promise to run the blockchain. And if it doesn't work, can you can you go after them? Let's slow, let's slow that down again. Just for the avoidance of doubt, I'm not talking about any particular project, token, network, etc. But let's talk generally about proof of stake networks. A proof of stake network involves, you know, a 
one or more persons sending value to a smart contract address and locking it there, and that is subject to risk, to slashing, uh, if the node uh, operated by that person does not perform within the rules of the protocol. And so it creates an economic incentive for somebody's computer to behave in a way that's consistent with the predefined set of rules. Staking as a service means, well, boy, you just made my head explode there, buddy. I, I can't do all that, but I have a lot of tokens. Would you send them to an address and do that for me? Yes, that person that's providing the staking as a service is not running the network. They are simply doing an administrative task on your behalf. You could have simply sent tokens directly to an address and have that staking relationship with that address, but it's confusing to you. And so you get your buddy, Fahad, hey, man, you seem to know that computer stuff. Could could you do that for me? And if you want, you can take 3% of whatever I get and thank you for your troubles and give me the rest. Fahad's not running the network. He's simply providing administrative services to us. Now, we could change that. Fahad could say, actually, I'm really, really good at this. I can do all kinds of things. And that Andreas guy, he doesn't, he has no idea what he's doing, man. Give your tokens to me and I will ensure at a minimum you're going to get, you know, a a 90% return and I'm going to do all these great things. And trust me, man, I'm the guy because those other people, they're jokers. You know, all of a sudden we have a different relationship, right? Now Fahad is, right? So, So there is a lot of gray area as to when do administrative services end and investment product begin. And it's in the nature of our legal system that courts have to ultimately be the arbiters of that. Right. So, but but going back to crypto assets more broadly, because we're actually now getting into functionality very, very, mm-hmm. uh, very delicately. Um, if if we go back to the decision of Ripple against the SEC, uh, I think Judge Torres essentially made a very clear case statement saying that uh, the XRP token is not a security, neither is Bitcoin or uh, or the ETH token, right? Um, these cryptocurrencies, because yeah. in and by themselves, they don't make a investment contract. Um, yes. But they could be. And they do not embody a scheme. I think again, something we hammered scheme, on yes. in, in our in our in our papers, this embodiment theory, and Judge Torres really embraces that. Whether she read the paper, we may one day we will know. Who knows? Uh, but she certainly embraces the thinking and says, not only are these not securities, but they don't embody a scheme because the SEC, I think, has recognized that you know what is a token? It's really the ability of a person to have you know access to a, a password a private key that allows you to give an instruction to an address that holds some other number none of that stuff is inherently a security and i think they sort of more or less have given up on that and instead they sort of argue that well well yes 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 i know there's really just numbers but it, it embodies the scheme and I think what is critical is when Judge Torres says, eh, no, XRP doesn't embody anything, right? Um, there may be a scheme, and she found that there was when people came to Ripple Labs and said, hey, I've got a lot of money. You got anything interesting over there? And they said, you know, funny, I got a lot of tokens. Would, would you like some of those? And they said, well, why would I want those? And they said, well, look at this, like materials here. Don't you see? They're going to be worth much more in the future. Don't you know? How about give me some of that money? 
And they did, and they didn't have an available exemption. And Judge Torres said, well, that relationship, I give you money, you tell me things that lead me to believe that I'm going to make more money later. I don't have any need for the XRP tokens. I'm not doing stuff with them. That's an investment contract transaction. And she found that uh, those institutional sales were investment contract transactions. When people were buying and selling on existing marketplaces, and not aware that little bits of XRP were being thrown into the mix, she's saying at a minimum, hey, SEC, you did not establish to my satisfaction that those individual persons who coincidentally happened to buy the tokens being sold by Ripple Labs as opposed to the tokens being sold by Fahad, Lewis, or Andreas, they knew were involved in any way. They had no relationship with Ripple Labs, they weren't contributing or didn't know that they were contributing, and they were not part of that. And so there was no investment contract uh, going on there. I see. So I'm still trying to wrap my head around this. So I'm, I'm just trying to simplify it for my my my, mm. my piece of brain here. So uh, so first, so I think one thing that you're saying is if you have an item and that mm -hmm. has no anchor in some form, then that's mm -hmm. not per se a security, right? Mm -hmm. So. If you take a cryptocurrency, I mean, Bitcoin is, a, is a, probably a great example. It mm -hmm. is there's something which floats around and it relates to nobody or nothing, right? Mm -hmm. at, at least not to a specific, well-defined entity, right? So mm -hmm. there's no firm called Bitcoin. There is no single person who makes a promise relating to Bitcoin. The same holds for ETH. ETH is not... The ETH token is related to a abstract organism, which is the Ethereum blockchain or network, right? It's a network. Mm -hmm. um, so no no entity which has a particular made a particular promise or has particular control. Mm -hmm. um, so that seems to be one feature here. Um, and then, so there's no anchor. Um, now, when I think about a DeFi application, um, so there is, a, that, that gets actually quite interesting in a way because a DeFi application can be, it's, it's basically a piece of code, right? And mm -hmm. the application itself can send out, give people a token and that token can have some relation with that code. Mm -hmm. But because that talk, so that code is some form of anchor, but because it lives in an organism, it is again mm -hmm. not an anchor because it's not a single entity. Is that correct to say? Yeah, I mean, obviously using the term uh, organism metaphorically speaking, yeah, it's just really just part of uh, uh, moving numbers around as, as code. And, you know, interestingly, there is a minority of scholars, but, but an important group who say you know, we shouldn't view these as securities, as banking, as finance, as anything. This is just some strange form of wagering. And, you know, there is something to be said for that. It, it, it's, I would argue, much more complex than that. But, you know, they recognize that really all we are doing is sending a series of instructions to computers and don't have relationships with anybody that you can ring up and say, hey, you didn't do what you said you were going to do. By the way, so, so Louis, I just want to clarify you because I think what you're saying is actually uh, a fair bit more precise than than maybe naively some people might follow, right? Which is that so to take the example of a decentralized application, there may be uh, an entity uh, that is supporting it, for example, doing upgrades, etc. Um, but I think what you're saying though is if that entity doesn't offer any sort of right to the to the people who are acquiring the token. Um, then, uh, then it's still not an investment contract. So, for example, 
I could be involved in upgrading the code that Andreas was referring to, and there could be tokens associated with the code. And I may have even been involved in the initial sort of release of those of those tokens. But as long as I have not sort of, um, as long as there's no like legal right that I that I'm giving out to the the token holders, um, it's not an investment contract between me and the the people who happen to be buying these tokens downstream, right? So there might be an yeah. entity that sort of bears the name um, of the token yeah. and even supports it, but that's not the yes. same thing as there being a legal right between that entity and the people who happen to be holding the tokens um, prospectively. That, that's completely correct. And this kind of goes to this point of, of this idea of an issuer independent security. There's this, there which does not exist. There is a necessary relationship, Fahad, if you have a security, you know, with an entity that you would say, hey, you're the issuer. And one way to know that is if you dissolve that entity, you don't have any more security. However, in the case of the development company that, let's say, plays a critical role in you know, maintaining an ongoing that, that, that protocol, you can dissolve that legal entity and some of the people can reform a new legal entity. Maybe it's all of them. Maybe it's 90% of them. Maybe it's 6% of them. Maybe it's a couple of one smart one and a couple of dummies that get together. But they can reform an entity and keep doing that support. There's no connection between the token and any one legal entity, and you can't really say. They could split off into two. They have a big fight with each other. Ah, I hate you. I'm starting my own company. And then they both do stuff, right? None of these things are aligned with the concept of securities. In securities, there is a person, there's an issuer. They dissolve. They go away. You don't have a security anymore. These are just people who have an aligned economic interest. You know That does not mean that those people in raising money did not create investment contract transactions by saying, hey, give me money and I'm going to do all this stuff. But that relationship is with the people from whom they directly raise money. If two people not otherwise related to that development company are exchanging that particular asset, they have no relationship with the development company. They may be reliant on the on the development company and it may suck for them if the development company does things not expected but that's not anything they have any rights over in the same way that when you trade crude oil, you may have a high degree of dependence on decisions that OPEC take very recently, quite recently, like earlier this week. There are a bunch of stories about De Beers intervening in the diamond market. De Beers obviously plays an outsized role in the diamond market. The, apparently, the diamond market was, was, was collapsing and De Beers directly intervened to, to prop up prices <coughs> and take steps to do that. You know, we don't have, if we are on 48th Street or 47th Street, wherever it is where they have the diamond markets in New York City, we don't have, and assuming we're not otherwise related to De Beers, that could like either help us, hurt us, excuse me. Um, uh, in fact, you know what would be prudent is, you want to stop and just get some water, Chris. Can I, can I do that for one second? Let's go. Yeah, yeah sure. we'll add it after the fact, so we'll cut we'll this stuff. Yeah, yeah, don't yeah, worry yeah. about Thank it. Thank you. Sorry about that. I should have had some I water. I need have a question. <laughs> So actually, a question I want to ask Lewis when he comes back, and maybe we can integrate it in, is that when you think about, for example, let's say I write a white paper uh, from, and I'm going to deploy a decentralized application, um, and I'm going to issue some governance tokens, um, and the white paper, so I guess the white paper doesn't actually create rights in the sense that Lewis is describing, 
but does that somehow oblige me? Because I think what the scenario is, one of the scenarios he's thinking about is sort of like, look, when I initially issued the governance tokens, I entered investment contracts with the particular people that I was issuing the tokens to, but I'm not an invest in an investment contract with the people subsequently because I didn't really, you know, I have no relationship to them. Um, but I think there's, there's actually questions that we have to answer there too. I actually have questions on that too, yeah. But so, Louis, if I could um, interject a question for you, um, because I'm, I'm trying to, you know, naively going back to Howie for a moment, right? So because one thing you said basically is like, if the firm, you know, that you have in the relationship disappears, then the whole scheme disappears. But if you think of Howie, for instance, right? In Howie, there's the, there's the land, which has the orange crops on it. So, and then there's the management firm that, that sells back the, that basically leases back the, uh, the orange, the, the, the orange crops and then, you know, manages the land and then, you know, goes on and makes profits for people and, and disseminates the profits. So in this case, however, so if Howie, the, the corporation disappears, the land is still there, the orange crops are still there. Um, is that, I mean, is that maybe too naive because maybe there's real assets involved? Um, because, you know, just the management disappears, right? And we would still have well, that scheme I mean, that they offered as an investment contract yeah, of sorts. Yeah. Remember, broadly speaking, we, we, we see two types of investment schemes, the ones in which there's an object which is largely irrelevant to the scheme, and the other where there's some sort of unusual contract that is a contract but doesn't meet any of the other prescribed definitions. That latter but and much, much smaller set is very different. In the case of the, you know, object and scheme, there's always some sort of object and it persists, but nobody suggests that the ownership of the object by itself is a security, whether that's land, whether it's, again, the oranges, the, the strawn seeds, or, you know, a, a digital token. Um, one thing I wanted to bring out, which I'm sure will be of interest to you guys as ec economists, is another argument that we've seen courts and certainly the SEC make is, come on, these digital asset things, they have no inherent value. And so that's why they embody a scheme, because no reasonable person would want something that has no inherent value if there wasn't some sort of scheme involved. And I think that's a tricky argument, but ultimately a false one, because what is inherent value, especially for economists, is wholly contextual. I think you know economists have addressed this uh, for a long time. The value of a token, because what is a token? It's knowledge of a number that allows you to give an instruction to a computer. It has as much or as little value as you need to give an instruction to that computer. So if by giving instruction to that computer or network of computers, you can induce someone else to give you a Rolls Royce because it's Bitcoin and you're sending, you know, you know, five Bitcoin to someone and they're giving you a silver Rolls Royce. That has a lot of inherent value to you. You know, it, it really depends. If it allows you to engage in various transactions, it has value. So I think the idea that something inchoate and intangible, like the ability to give an instruction to a network of computers, has no inherent value is just fundamentally false and wrong. Like anything else, the value is contextual on, you know, what people need. So I, I think 
the idea that that certainly has been proffered in certain of the cases is that there must be a scheme because the token has no inherent value. Now, again, you can create a token that does nothing. As Fahad, you know, I think you've told me you do this in your class. You know, you can take 20 minutes and log in and create an ERC-20. It's, it's the simplest thing. And then you can go around and give it some fancy, fun name, the, the Andreas Fahad Lewis coin. Man, this thing's going to the moon. And all of a sudden, give me a lot of money and I'll give you some of these tokens that I created in five minutes. But it's really no different than the jelly beans or, you know, if you, you ran, ran around, here you go, it's a little piece of paper. It's worth a lot in the future. It's a little pink, pink piece of paper, right? You know, it's the same thing. That inducement to someone of saying, hey, I've got something, little piece of paper, token, jelly bean, orange, all those things. If you give me money, I'll make that thing be worth more in the future. That's what we're seeking to regulate. That's where we attach our principles, which are someone wants to do something with their capital. They deserve, if they do not have the market power to extract the information they need about that opportunity, the government should step in and ensure that they get that information, right? That is our core principle here. What the SEC has sought to do is to extrapolate that into these marketplaces and say, well, you should know, marketplace, that what you're dealing in is a security. That's where the whole thing falls apart. It is not because you cannot know, nobody can reasonably assess whether a scheme is ongoing or not. And I know, Bahad, I gave you a lengthy example of some founders who start a token and then crash and they're they, they, one of them is recovered. And like when you think the founders are dead, the scheme's over, it's not a security and you find one and now it's a security again. And how does that work? And it just doesn't really hold up. You can't impose liabilities on people who are otherwise have nothing to do with the scheme for trading something if they can't determine whether they're dealing something. And how do you determine whether something is a security when you're a stranger to this scheme? You pick it up and you look at it. Oh, does it say hey, if I give Lewis this pink piece of paper, he'll give me a jelly bean, that might tip you off, right? If all the pink piece of paper does is it allows you to give instructions to a computer that tells you nothing about whether there is a scheme. So I want to go into something really concrete, though. And I know that you don't want to talk about a particular token, but let's let's keep it in the abstract. But because um, I think this, I mean, this, you know, it, I think it may actually bring out maybe that that the opinion that you have is 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 really extreme in a way, right? And so let's do this. So lending platforms, uh, you create a lending platform. Lending platform is just a pool, and within the pool, you need you know in order for a lending platform to work, you need people to be willing to make deposits, and you need people to be willing to actually take the deposits as in borrowing. Okay, so that's that's just actually a piece of code. You can just copy it. It exists on the blockchain. You can do it. It's not hard. Now, in order to get that, though, you need to incentivize people. And let's say you create a token which is given out for the first 100 days to people who make liquidity deposit and keep their money in there and to people who, who make who borrow, right? And so you both of the both sides of the of the deal get tokens. And now this is this is just a thing, right? So it's just a, a digital sticker. So that's still fine, right? I think nobody has any problems with it. Now, now let's say this whole lending platform will create a reserve fund for some form. You know, in case something goes wrong, you pay out of the reserve fund to make sure that you make people whole. Okay. That is still something which is perfectly fine to do. 
But now you say this token that you issue that comes automatically through this protocol goes is the claim is a claim on this reserve fund. Essentially, what that's what it is. Now, what you've created here is essentially is a bank, right? Because a bank essentially the equity of a bank is the reserve fund. Um, but without can a, ask without you, can actually, I ask you first, why do you well, call that a loan? Pardon? What, why why did you call that a loan? What, what do I call a loan? No, it's a reserve fund, not a loan. No, 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 no. no. The original transaction, there's no loan. And I, let me tell you why there's never a loan. There's not a loan. That's the problem. There is no loan. And that is because what people do on these ostensibly lending platforms is they send one digital asset to an address, lock it there, and get another digital asset. And if they never come back for their digital asset, it doesn't really much matter. They lose their digital asset. That's not a loan. Okay. That's not what, any what kind of loan it? I've ever seen. What? Yeah, no, what people use a lot of terms, but I'm just saying trying to map because where you want to go, and I understand that, Andreas, is say, oh, this looks like a bank, but it doesn't look like a bank because there's fundamental economic differences of what's going on here. So this is what I, I want to bring out. But I, I, right, think, okay, also, so, okay, maybe, I think also partially so. one, one, one important point here is this what Lewis has been talking about with the difference between rights and abilities in that. Part of what he's getting at is, look, if it's just that I send an instruction to the network and then this sort of action occurs, um, that's different than me saying, look, I will give you like, Andreas, even as you were framing the question, you were referring to an entity doing things. But I think it, I th and Lewis, correct me if I think in what you're saying, it matters whether the entity is sort of actually uh, obliged as the entity itself to do something uh, where you can like take them to court and say like, no, no, look, you didn't give me this. Or whether it's, you know, they just wrote some code that is going to generate the action that you're thinking of. Well, actually, and, I, and if it's just the code generating the action, I believe that's what Lewis is referring to as an ability, that the token is giving you an ability to do this or that. Whereas a right is the case where I'm saying, no, no, look, you do whatever and I will give you this. Uh, and as an entity, I will give you this. And, you know, yeah, you can take me to a judge if I don't do it. And you can say like, no, no, look, you, you said you were going to do this and you didn't do it. So do it, you know. Right. Well, I actually had a point which was coming two sentences later, if if I if I still may. <laughs> I, I I fully take the point about you know I'm casually referring to something as a bank. I know a bank actually does something else. It's a little bit like what you know goldsmiths have been doing, if you really want, right? So in the in the 15th and 13th century and so on in the UK. Um, but what I was getting is the following. So you have the reserve fund, you have created, let, let me just call it a bank for whatever reason. It doesn't really matter, right? For the purposes of what we're talking about. And there is no entity doing it. Everything runs on a decentralized network. You have created this token. This token is created within the smart contract system. There is still no entity in charge. It's all fine, right? So given your, your description of what constitutes a security, this is not a security. I agree. But now I want to say what happens now if, in the creation, there is a there is a firm that created the original code, and these tokens that are given out as incentives, they retain a certain fraction, which allows them, which is enough for them to make take control of these reserve assets. So, under what circumstances does that all of a sudden become a security? Is there a threshold rule? Is there a fact that they retain any of these tokens, does, or is there none of it that makes it a security? That that's kind of what I was getting after. Sure. And I, I, you know, again, I think it, it really is, it goes to this critical distinction between 
is there a relationship between two people? And it doesn't have to be, I don't personally fall into the camp of thinking you need to have an actual contract, but you have two people, I'm telling you something and you're giving me something that you were induced to do that, as opposed to I'm a developer, I'm updating and writing code and I'm doing different things and you're using that code there may be other principles of law that makes the developer responsible. There may not be, but they're not securities law principles. The securities law principles apply when there is an affirmative investment transaction that involves one person giving an identifiable other person value and expecting something from that other person because it's not a gift. In those, you know, ostensible lending programs, generally speaking, that is not the case. People are giving various instructions to computers and hoping that outcomes are the way they are anticipated. And in most cases they are, but they're, you know, that, but if they're not, you know, again, that, you know, unless, and again, and this is an important point, and we've seen these exploits with mango markets being the most notable, perhaps, when we see these exploits, we have someone who at least ostensibly is misusing the protocol, and this is a very, very controversial issue, but you know how that person used, at least at that point, you have an identifiable actor, and we have to consider, has what the identifiable actor done sort of in some way created some other legal liability under our current principles? But that's very different from just the nature of the protocol. There we have a clear and, and, and identifiable actor. We don't... Another way I would say, Andreas, is that we don't have a principle of securities, you know, in the air. That's another way of saying it. There, there's this not securityness around something. It's not, you know, kind of a, 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 a hollandaise sauce that you can sort of pour over something and say, well, it would taste so much better. You know, put some hollandaise sauce. It's a little dry. Um, and and I think the 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 approach here is that where there are legitimate policy concerns and there's nothing else better around and people look around the kitchen and they see some hollandaise sauce, they say, well, you know, I know it doesn't really go on this, but it's close enough and I don't have anything else there. And the problem is we start to create distortions by treating something as a security, which is just not a security. And rather, as we argue, there are legitimate reasons why we could use more regulation in the space. I think almost everybody uh, in the crypto space would, would, would advocate for that, but it needs to be thought through and applicable at the time rather than sort of jerry-rigging a scheme, a regulatory scheme that doesn't apply and saying, well, can't we just shove it into this box? I think that's really the point I'm trying to make. Right. Um, well, and I appreciate that point uh, mm. for sure. Um, so, so if if I can come back to my point, so yeah. you, so if I take the layperson's perspective, right, mm -hmm. and so the way I describe this particular scheme, it seems really obvious that uh, that what this token would be that it would count as a security, and if I if I oversimplify what you say, is basically mm. no, that's actually not true because even though I may have some say over the over the reserve pool, which is sort of like ultimately representation of what we hope this you know this letters and numbers that we shift around in the blockchain universe will generate and will generate something that could be construed as having value. Um, because you have actually no no impact on it, because you have nothing to do with the administration and the running of this, therefore 
this is not a security. Is that is that maybe is that too much of an oversimplification? No, no it's not. But let me ask you a different question. Let let let's do the other direction. Let's assume it is a security. Then what? Well, that's a good, that's a that's a completely different question, which I actually want to get no, to no, later. No, but, just, but this is it helps one think it through because you know we do spend what seems like an inordinate inordinate amount of time with this. Like, is it security is it not a security? Not a security. You know, like God knows the poor people who watch like all my podcasts, they must be sick of it already. You know, but 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 let, let's just say it was a security. Just like screw the whole thing. You know, right? What would be different? You know, what would be different? The main thing that would be different is that under current principles, there would be no practicable way of people to create marketplaces for those crypto assets that are accessible, at least in the United States. There's no practicable way to do that. So effectively, what that would be, it wouldn't stop the protocols from acting. It would just mean that there would be no legal way. And one um, you know, example I like to look at, which I think is very relevant from an economics point of view, is the situation prior to the constitutional amendment that adopted prohibition of alcohol in the last century. There were like very, very good societal reasons why people would be concerned about the use, sale, and consumption of alcohol in the United States. By creating a prohibition, the net result of that was simply they didn't stop alcohol. What they did was make it less transparent, more you know, outside the U.S., and it was a terribly failed experiment. So I guess one of my points would be let's just say, okay, let's stop with all this. Let's, let's just say these are all securities. What is the outcome of that conclusion, right? And I think it's important to follow that train of thought through, like – it doesn't magically create people who are liable and make everything better. It just, you know, eliminates the activity on a legal basis and creates a black market for this stuff where people use VPNs and they just keep doing this stuff, perhaps less so, but nevertheless, it doesn't, you know, so I think it's important, like what end result is the law seeking to achieve? So actually I want to come, come to that because I think this is, I think this is actually a critical question around this and, um, I mean, you know, ultimately, so let's say, you know, security law is all encompassed and it touches on everything. Fine. Fair enough. Right. So what you really what you're really saying is a question of how can you comply? What does compliance mean? Is compliance uh, compatible with usage? Right. I think I think this mm -hmm. is the key problem that we're all facing here. Um, so can you run us maybe in a very, a very briefly to actually what the compliance requires. Um, so I think there is, it starts with the fact of if you are deemed to be in some form an issue of a security, it feels, it seems like you need a physical address and you need to be a company, right? So that's, I think this is where this whole thing starts. This is the, all of the first problem. And then what kind of submissions have to be done? What does this mean for transfers of assets? Who can transfer assets? Run us through us, go wild. Yeah. Well, well, the short of it is, yes, as exactly as you say, Andreas, there are uh, two broad set of rules. There, there are some other rules, too, but there are two broad sets of rules. The rules found in the Securities Act of 1933, which I alluded to before, and the Securities Act of 1934, which, which followed. And, and broadly speaking, conceptually, uh, the 33 Act relates to uh, raising money through the sales of securities, and the 34 Act deals with issues around existing securities and their trading. So taking them one at a time, 
compliance, in theory at least, with uh, the 33 Act is occurring today because the framework of the 33 Act says if you offer a security to the general public, you must go through an SEC registration process. The SEC has made it very clear that that process is going to be time-consuming, painful, costly, and impractical. A couple of people tried something like that in 2019, um, a company called Blockstack and another company called YouNow, neither of which projects, you know, they suffered, they suffered for their sins. Um, but our securities laws also provide, as I had referred to before, exemptions. So if you sell tokens to people without a, uh, a public offering, in effect, um, then you can have a very legitimate security sale and not have to register with the SEC. And in fact, that's what's been going on that for the most part for the last three or four years since, you know, kind of people figure that one out. So in terms of raising money, there's really a perfectly legal path to, 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 to raising money. The issue really becomes what happens when those tokens get traded. And that's where, why the lawsuit against of the SEC against the three major exchanges, one of which has been resolved, Bittrex, uh, but the two that remain, uh, Binance and Coinbase, are so critical. Because that's really, and those are under the 34 Act, not the 33 Act. And that's where the compliance really becomes problematic. A company that has issued securities and has more than, I think, 2,000 uh, total holders or 500 or 300 um, uh, non-accredited holders must register with the SEC. So there's a general rule. If you've issued securities and they're widely held, you need to register as what we call a reporting company with the SEC and file all kinds of reports and do all kinds of things, which are completely reasonable and appropriate. But exactly as you say, Andreas, a project cannot do that. The development company that created the token cannot necessarily file those forms or take that responsibility because that's simply not their, their role. So becoming a reporting company becomes somewhere between difficult or impossible. In addition, we have rules around three particular areas, and they're the three particular areas that were uh, raised as a concern by the SEC in these uh, lawsuits with the marketplaces. One, acting as an exchange. Number two, acting as a broker-dealer. And number three, acting as a clearing agency, all of which require federal registration none of which can be practicably complied with under our current system. So independently of any problems that a quote-unquote issuer, whoever that might be, might have in registering their securities, there are fundamental limitations on the ability of marketplaces to behave as a securities exchange because they're fundamentally not securities exchanges, and none of the rules really, really apply, including in particular, if you take the position that the tokens are securities, but they're unregistered, then you shouldn't be trading unregistered securities. Um, likewise, on the broker-dealer front, um, you need to register with the self-regulatory organization for broker-dealers, known as FINRA in the United States, and you need to comply with a whole bunch of other things that, that as a practicality, don't, don't really function. And finally, uh, if you're providing clearing agency services for securities, you need to register as a clearing agency and comply with a whole nother set of regulations. Again, all are, as a practical matter, not possible. So if, if it were a security, you, you would just you would have to just largely stop absent some fundamental change in the way our current regulations work. So so just just very briefly, just as a very brief. So are those rules that you have, are they are the result already of the Securities Act from 1934 and 33? Yes. Um, and is that is that merely a question of of implementation or is this a 
a fundamental problem with the act itself. So because I'm asking, say it's a problem with the act itself. It's the proverbial, you know, square peg round hole problem. It's that the, the the rules work just fine for things that actually are securities. They don't work at all for things that are not actually securities, and that's why we have these problems. Right, because because what I'm wondering is, and at the end of the day, you know, Congress. I mean, now correct me if I'm wrong here, but Congress usually establishes a regulatory agency, gives them a mandate, and then the regulator makes up their own rules to stay within yeah. this mandate and to fulfill this mandate. And there's a question of whether or not there is a set of rules that the SEC or policies the SEC could uh, could envision and could could implement and create such that uh, you know crypto asset issuers of some form or other could actually comply. Is, is that, in, in just very broadly, do you think that it's actually conceptually possible for the SEC to do this or do we really need a different act? It is conceptually, I mean, it is possible to do, once you have a pen, you know, you could kind of do anything you want. Um, if you wanted the SEC to be the primary regulator of marketplaces in crypto assets, you, you could do that. That would almost certainly require an act of Congress because the, the nature of the changes are very significant. But you could do that. There has been a debate because we have two market regulators. We also have the CFTC. Um, and you you could either choose one, the other, or some combination of the two, or in theory, create a third one. Those are your you know available options. There are definitely uh, reasons why you might, in the abstract, at least say the SEC is the appropriate regulator because they're more familiar with matters relating to disclosure and markets and other things, the commodities markets tend to be much more institutional for the most part, and they're designed differently. But on the other hand, there are more similarities between crypto assets and commodities. In any event, these have been debated um, in Congress. And you know, at this point in time, we've had some great legislation introduced both in the House and the Senate. But you know, given the current state of affairs, they're unlikely to move forward anytime soon. I see. So you know, in a, in a, in a sense of looking ahead, so let's say for the sake of the argument um people get enlightened take your take your advice and say these are not these uh, so they they are not crypto assets uh, sorry they're not securities um and therefore what happens now <laughs> so how do we so i mean at the end of the day you still want an environment in which when people give money to some give away their money in some form that they that they have some certainty that the money is used in a responsible way that seems not to be possible no, well, let's just, just remember when the fundraising, I think, is indisputably a securities transaction. So, you know, to the extent someone got a wild hair and, um, you know, after one too many planters punches, put up a website and tried to sell tokens that way, that would be they, they would be regulated. That is a regulated transaction. What, what, what the issue here really is not the fundraising or the protection of investors that way. It's the secondary trading and something that already exists. And that's a much more pernicious sort of, of, of issue because you're not protecting investors directly from any one person in particular. You know, let's take Ethereum as a paradigm. What disclosure would you want to give investors about Ethereum that would equivocate would be equivalent 
to the kind of disclosure that a public company would provide. It's a constantly changing ecosystem with all sorts of things and all kinds of people doing differently. There's a degree of control. And, and obviously, there are projects in which you know there is much more clearly one person or entity that's active than there is in Ethereum. But it's a continuum. And you can't really say because, as we've said many times, that one entity that's more active doesn't have any obligation to do that and may cease doing that. You can't say, well, you have to say everything that you're doing. Um, the framework in the Senate bill I alluded to, I believe, is the most effective one. In that framework, what it says is if a company raises money by selling crypto assets, even in private transactions, once you have sold those assets, if you continue to promote the project and provide what in Howey terms we call the essential managerial efforts, um, then you have to continue providing ongoing disclosures to the market as long as you're providing those essential managerial efforts. That links the fundraising, which is a securities transaction, and the benefit of that to say, look, hey, you're going to give me money because I'm going to create a jelly bean that's really good and do all these cool things or storm seed, right? And But I, you're placing the economic burden, which is something you mentioned earlier, Andreas, you're placing the economic burden on the party that's most able to bear that burden, the party that raised the money. And so in this framework, you're, it's not so much that the token is a security such that it has to trade on a securities market. We're just saying that someone sold an object, a non-security object, and continues to drive the value of that object and therefore should provide disclosure to the marketplace based on what they know. Those are two very different frameworks. And I think the latter, which is in the Senate bill, makes a ton of sense and would be the right one to adopt. Interesting. All right. Well, um, so, I mean, but one thing I will note is this has just come from somebody with a European background. It's, yeah. it, it, there is a certain sense in which in North America, it's always an obsession with holding a particular person accountable. And if that person, mm. you know, uh, if, if something goes wrong, that person has to go to jail. Right. So that's mm. kind of the, the, the there's something in the American mindset about this. Right. Something goes wrong. Somebody has to get punished. Right. Um, that's not necessarily the case elsewhere. <laughs> well, we also have a good thing of forgiveness, too, because like in the Martha Stewart of the world, she did something wrong. She got punished and now she's back and even stronger than ever. So so it's kind of a weird dynamic where we both punish people and then forgive them. You could make well, something uh, okay, so uh, Just to uh, clarify a little bit here. So so you're, you're not saying that, you know, non-accredited investors who end up holding these tokens shouldn't ideally get some level of disclosure about what they're holding. You're really making a point about the fact that let's call it the natural entity that you would normally burden with that disclosure requirement doesn't really exist. Um, and maybe it's not, it's not a good idea to just sort of shoehorn um, uh, kind of the, the, the entity that people uh, to, to shoehorn somebody in there, who's not actually there, uh, who, who doesn't necessarily fit the initial ideas of securities laws. Um, and I think what you were alluding to with the, with uh, some of the recent legislation was sort of trying to identify who could provide the disclosure, who would most reasonably sort of uh, bear that burden. Uh, but there's also then a question about, for example, given that um, let's say let's talk about like the developers who are say supporting the code, who are continuing to was it the managerial efforts? You, you made some reference mm -hmm. to a term like that. Who are sort of engaging in these ongoing managerial efforts? And then you sort of burden them with the uh, disclosure requirements. 
there's sort of a, a natural economist question here, which is that that, of course, affects the incentive problem of these developers who are now engaging these managerial efforts. And it's quite possible that, you know, they were doing good work to actually sort of reduce, let's say, the bugs, et cetera, in the code. Um, but now that they have a disclosure requirement, they would actually just prefer not to do anything and they can just shut down um, and the tokens will continue to trade. And, and, and so is, I, I guess I want to uh, ask a little bit then, is that framework that you were, that you were describing uh, sort of thinking fully about the economic implications um, and to the extent that it's not, how do you think about sort of assigning that burden? Yeah, it's a great question, and I think the right one. And I think what you bring out, Fahad, is the inherent balancing when it comes to policy matters. You have to, you know, you you, you there are trade offs, and you know there are both incentives and disincentives. And you know, I think economists would love a world in which everybody ultimately was cosian and took into account transaction costs and worked everything out. And, and, and that is a world, it's just a world that has a lot of, you know, adverse consequences along the way. And I think that's the kind of thing we want to balance out. So yes, um, imposing that burden, on, and I just want to emphasize, you impose the burden in the Senate bill on those who actually raised the money. So they got the benefit from that money they probably wouldn't have raised had they not been able to create this tradable non-security asset. I would also observe that you know yeah just just to clarify so if if I raise the money but then I don't do anything thereafter would yeah. that Senate bill burden me with any requirements no okay no so it it would import the Howie test it would say well you know is your you know Fahadco you know exercising the essential managerial efforts that drive value to this or did you you know, uh, do the Bahamas test, as another scholar, Todd Henderson said, and just, you know, move on from the project, um, you know, and if, if it's moved on, then there's nothing to disclose, because for better or worse, you're not doing anything. So there, there isn't anything to disclose. The difference, I want to really hone in, this is a very subtle but critical point, because I think the SEC in their current framework would agree or, or would assert that, yes, it's the person who raised the money that has to do the disclosure. So it's not that, it's that their only way of getting to that conclusion under the law as it stands today is by saying that the token is a security. That way you can back into an obligation of the person who raised the money as having disclosure obligations. That's the only way you can do that today under the law as it stands. That's why you need Congress to change the law and say, even though those tokens are not securities, we're still going to impose disclosure burdens in a certain way, right? So that's the key difference. Right now, the only way we can get there is to back into that conclusion by sticking the label security on something that's not a security and then getting the outcome that you want. Hey, buddy, you have to provide disclosure. In the Senate bill, you would not have to apply that label because we're changing the rules and we're saying if you raise money, it doesn't have to be. You could be selling you know, Louis Vuitton bags and driving the value of that or any which other thing. It actually only applies to intangible assets, but whatever. Um, you know, It doesn't have to be a token, but it just has to be something. So we need to change the law to get to a more appropriate policy outcome. 
That's the critical thing. And it's that's because by treating the tokens as securities, you get into this complete conundrum of marketplaces and how you regulate marketplaces. And you would have to regulate marketplaces as if they were securities exchanges. But the whole framework of our securities laws just does not fit. And that's why we have this grinding of the gears. That's how we backed ourselves into this problem. So you want the disclosure, but the only way you can get the disclosure is by making this inappropriate framing of tokens as securities to get the policy outcome that you want. But so the baggage that that brings is a framework that fundamentally doesn't work. That's that's our inherent problem. I see. And in some sense, is it fair to say that the European MICA um, rules actually do exactly that? Because I think one of the requirements there is the white paper requirement and the like. So that seems to be exactly aiming at what you're describing. Is that correct? It is. And we'll do another show on MICA. <laughs> There's, there's, I got a lot to say about that, but not this time because we do probably have to wrap up. So yeah, we shall, we shall. We we, we're close to the end here. Mm. Um, So one thing I want to, and and Fahad and I actually had a discussion around this because there's the question also on the obligation of developers. Now this is a little subtle, and because it goes actually at the at it goes to the regulation that the US or the SEC has proposed on marketplaces and the definition of a marketplace, because they were going quite overboard in, in some sense, right? Where they basically said, if you are writing the code for a decentralized application, which could serve as a marketplace, then you are also liable to the SEC, which of course, for people like Fahad and me is a concern because we are in the business of coming up with ideas for the economics of these marketplaces. And if you think about it one step further, the developer, right, is the person who actually implements somebody else's ideas. So that kind of at some point makes actually academics uh, liable too, if you if you really go through the various different strings, right, which is a concern and which, you know, I mean, I'm in Canada, so I'm safe from you, but <laughs> but in the US, it's a concern, it's a First Amendment concern, if you, if you, if at least in my, my understanding, because I thought, code is and and writing is protected by first amendments and it's it would not be appropriate i think for the sec to regulate speech but maybe you have a view on that it's i mean those are great questions i would say i mean the, the the question about what speech is or is not protected you know gets gets complicated quickly and and especially when it's commercial speech uh which is you know for the purpose of making money that gets very complicated but i i don't think you need to get to that level of complexity i think again in a perfect Kosian world, you know, transaction costs would be balanced out and the marketplace actors in an open marketplace would allocate those costs in a way that is fair and balanced in due course. The the issue that we have is we're, we're not in that, that perfect world. And, you know, we have an unlimited number of, 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 as a practical matter, schemers and scammers who can create, there's virtually no barrier to entry, as we said um, earlier. Anyone can create a token. Anyone can pitch a scheme. And especially as crypto prices perhaps are going up again, it becomes hot. And there are many, many people to be taken advantage of. And of course, people have been taken advantage of since time immemorial, but this internet scam, you know, creates concerns, and I think it appropriately raises, you know, a regulatory interest in how do we prevent that to the greatest extent possible while still promoting innovation. You know, one issue, you know, would be well imposing liability on anybody who ever, you know, creates a smart contract that can deploy a token. But as you rightly observe, that that can be way, way. Uh, overbroad in terms of uh, you know imputing that liability, 
you know, for among other reasons, you know, someone can deploy code and then walk away, not have anything to do with it, or they can, you know, uh, you know, do GitHub commits for the for for the for the code for a while and then take a break for six months while they go find themselves. And is that, well, is that because they did a rug pull or they just decided I'm kind of bored with this, right? You know, where we need to have a societal dialogue about what, you know, now that this technology is available to us, you know, how is it used? We, we spent the entire hour and 40 minutes, um, you know, talking uh, without even touching on illicit finance, which is perhaps the most difficult issue, the facilitation of illicit finance. There were hearings in Congress earlier this week on this subject, and it's, it's one of the most, you know, uh, thorny issues. When people can move value around at scale without permissions, somebody is going to start to say, well, hmm, maybe I could do that for, and, and what even is illicit, right? So these are all very, very difficult societal questions that no one's really going to answer. And I, I just, I regret only that we don't see policymakers engaging enough in the sort of human elements of what is happening here and sort of focusing on, you know, what are really ultimately technicalities is a token of security, sort of whatever, you know, what are we doing about all this? And how does this work? And what does this mean as a society, right? We got to come to terms with that. Yeah, I fully agree. I think this is a this is a great conclusion and a great summary of actually the path forward. Um, I do believe that this discussion is important, though, um, and in particular for anybody who wants to create anything in this space, you need to want to have some form of certainty that um, you know you cannot be punished uh, several years down the road for an idea that you had um, and that you actually probably implemented to make the world a better place. Um, and I think this is. Uh, this is a concern that some people actually do have um, now, and it's a legitimate concern, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And so, with that, I think uh, I think this is probably a good point uh, for for us to wrap up because we're already at the close to the two hour mark for our own discussions here. And uh, I want to thank you, Lewis, and for an incredibly insight discuss insightful discussion. I learned an awful lot, and I hope the uh, the audience did too. Thank you. Well, thank you both. It's a pleasure being here. And I'll just say, you know, I, I, I have done a number of podcasts on these topics. It's rare that I get to dive so deeply with two such well-informed, you know, uh, colleagues uh, as you guys. So great credit to you both, to the Owl Explains team for hosting and for making this possible. So thank you. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. Thank you for listening. As a reminder, you can find additional materials on owlexplains.com and can stay updated by following us on social media. <laughs> That's all for today. Yeah.